Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. back in the Gospel of John, and we had taken a break for the Advent season, had a wonderful Advent season looking at Jesus and the the promised names of Jesus from Isaiah chapter 9, capped it off with a great network Christmas Eve service over in Brighton, Uh, had a wonderful time there. Last week had an awesome brunch last week, I think I'm still full uh, from that, Uh, it was a wonderful time, but we're back in the Gospel of John, which we started in September. And September to November, uh, we covered most of the first four chapters of John. And I do want to give a recap of that, but would encourage you that if you're new with us or you didn't catch all of those sermons, you can catch up on those on our website, coahforesthills.org. And you can either slash sermons or just go on the website and click the sermon tab, which is on the front page. Um, But just want to give you a bit of a recap of the Gospel of John to catch us up. Um, First of all, John wrote this book with three outcomes in mind. And if you go all the way to John chapter 20, verse 31, he sort of sees the the reason at the end of the book. He says that there really were three reasons. One is that to tell us that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior we're all looking for. He is the Son of God. He is God himself, God the Son, and that we would believe in him and find life in him. So ultimately, that John wanted to tell us who Jesus is as the Savior and God and why he is worth trusting. Why is Jesus worth you and I believing in? And this really is how faith works. Faith is always about being given information that you trust and then act upon. Faith is always being given given information that you trust and then act upon. Now, you might be thinking that faith and facts seem like polar opposites. They don't seem like things that go together. Uh, You may think that faith is is sort of pie in the sky, wishful thinking, or maybe this morning you have a little more of an antagonistic view of faith and think that faith is kind of for the weak. It's it's a crutch for those who don't know how to think. But I want to challenge you that every decision you make is a faith, faith decision. Every decision you make is a faith decision. This morning, you came here based on faith. You looked at our website, you looked at uh, the Church Center app, if uh, if you're on there, you looked at uh, social media, you looked at Google and saw we were having a church service this morning. You checked Instagram and saw that we said we would be here this morning. You placed faith in information and then acted upon it. And that's how all decisions you make work. It's the same with Jesus, that you've been given information, truth, a, a claim, and being asked to believe it. And when you consider the mounds of New Testament information and New Testament evidence about who Jesus is, there is no greater claim that we could give ourselves to, and there's no greater body of evidence for the life, work, and death of Jesus than the scriptures that we have. So faith and thinking are not really at odds with each other. And in fact, Tim Keller says that faith, therefore, is not the absence of thinking, not at all. Faith is the highest, and it's the most complete kind of thinking. It's the type of thinking that leads us to action. It's the type of thinking that leads us to change. And this gospel story, this good news, has to be considered because if it's really true, it's the best news possible. If Jesus really did come and live and die and raise again, we have no better news to give our lives to, no better truth to act upon. If Jesus really is the hope for the world, if he really is the one who can take away sin, if he's really the one who will do away with evil forever, we have no greater truth that we could give our lives to. 
And so John, summarizing John 1 through 4, tells us in John 1 that Jesus is the creator. That God, he is God with us. That he is, was with God the Father and with God the Son for all eternity. And that nothing was created except for by Jesus. We see that he came to be with us. We saw that he came to take away our sin. And that he calls people to himself because he's gracious. John chapter 2, we saw God doing great things through Jesus. That Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, which was a pretty cool miracle. Um, we see that also that he drove uh, money changers out of the temple because God's house would be holy. But then John chapter 3 and 4, we saw the, the conversation shift toward Jesus' interactions with people. Jesus interacts with the religious Nicodemus, and Nicodemus who comes to the table thinking that his goodness and his moral morality would get him an audience with God, quickly realizes that he could not be good enough to please God, but needed to be born again. And then we see at the end uh, in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the woman at the well, a woman who is unwanted, a woman who is ashamed, and yet Jesus dignifies her and offers her new life. And so as we come to the end of John chapter 4 and the beginning of John chapter 5, we begin to kind of round out Jesus' conversations with people. And as we read John chapter 4 verses 43 through 45, you might have been coming away a little confused. Because in verse 43, it says that after two days, he departed for Galilee. So he left his time with the Samaritans. He had led many of them to faith in himself. We see sort of a contradiction in verses 44 and 45. So he goes to Galilee, which was his hometown, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his own town. So it would seem that he wasn't welcomed. But then verse 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So what exactly is going on here? Was Jesus welcomed? Or was he not? And this really is helping us understand that throughout the gospel stories, a major theme is that Jesus is constantly misunderstood and constantly misrepresented. That people were wanting to make Jesus out to be something that they wanted him to be, not who he said he would be. In fact, there have been like 10 different interpretations of just these three verses. He goes home, yet there's no honor, but then he's welcomed. We, we see here in the next few verses that they weren't hostile toward Jesus. It said, having seen him and all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They'd seen Jesus do great things. They, they welcomed Jesus. They were even kind of proud of Jesus. But we see that they did not receive Jesus as Christ. They did not receive him as God. And that helps us understand verse 48, that Jesus isn't condemning the man for coming and asking for his son to be healed. Because where it says in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe that you is plural. It's like the Southern y'all, right? Unless y'all see signs and wonders. It's Jesus saying out loud to everyone in Galilee, you're missing the point of who I am. You're missing it. Nowhere by no one was Jesus seen as the Christ because Jesus' true home was heaven. And he was misunderstood by us, by us trying to make him a political savior or a help when we need him. But he came to be our God and savior. And so Jesus, we see Jesus stepping down into our world that his own people did not know who he was. And over and over in the gospel of John, he demonstrates who he is so people like you and I can know the real Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody in this passage has an opinion about Jesus. You come in this morning with an opinion about Jesus. You may come in this morning and think Jesus is simply your help when you have trouble. And so you go to Jesus when you need help, but otherwise he can kind of stay over there. You look at Jesus like he's a friend, he's, he's, he's a buddy. You look at Jesus as a good teacher, or maybe this morning you even have a hard time with Jesus. You struggle with the idea of Jesus 
being God and Savior and demanding things of him. But the question this morning is, do you really know the real Jesus? And I believe that if you would come to Jesus, if you knew the real Jesus, you would come to him. You'd give him everything if you truly saw who he was. If you saw that he is the Christ, he's the Son of God, the creator of all things, you would see he's also your creator. It means you're made by Christ and for Christ. And if you're made by Christ and for Christ, that means you find your life in Christ. So this morning, I want to look at three ways that Jesus shows us who he is and changes us forever. The first is that Jesus loves all sorts of people. This passage shows us that Jesus loves people all across the spectrum of humanity. Jesus comes to Galilee and Cana in verse 46. He goes back to the place where he had done the miracle at the wedding. He had turned water into wine. And Jesus' reputation is beginning to, to, to spread to other places. And we see that it's gotten all the way to Capernaum, where there was an official whose son was ill. This was about 27 miles away. This miracle of Jesus turning water into wine was, was a miraculous thing. Nobody else had ever seemed to be able to do that. Uh, it gets to the ears of this man, and he thinks, maybe he can help my son. And this, uh, this official, just to give you an idea of who, of who he was, he was likely a Jewish official, uh, and he was someone who was likely a high-ranking government worker under Herod. Herod was the ruler of the time. They called him Herod the Tetrarch. He wasn't the king because there was no king in Israel at the time, but by popular opinion, he was the king. All the social influencers, they loved Herod. He threw the best parties. He was the person everybody looked to. So this person was likely someone probably akin to like a high-ranking official in the president's office. And here this high-ranking official finds himself humbled going 27 miles, which is it's, back then, it's about like traveling in Boston. It takes, you know, a year to get from Boston to Boston. It's kind of the same way. It takes about a year to go 27 miles. It takes a long time. He finds himself humbling himself and going to this humble Jewish carpenter in the middle of nowhere. We see from this that Jesus also loves important people. He, he does love powerful people. He loves influential people. And he loves them because they tend to think that they have it all together. If you're someone who's powerful, if you're someone who's successful, if you're someone who's influential, if you're someone who makes money in the top income bracket, you tend to think you have nothing that Jesus could offer you. And what Jesus wants to tell you is that you are desperately wrong. Studies have shown that happiness and money are actually not tied together. There's a certain number in the middle class that once you get past that, you actually don't get any happier and eventually happiness begins to decline. Study after study showed that the most influential people are also the most lonely people and that our hearts were not meant for fame because if you're known for your accomplishments, if, you know, if you're known for what you're, you're doing, no one actually knows you. They know things about you, but no one actually knows the real you. When you think about a, 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 a social media influencer, you may feel like you know them, but you know, just know a plastic version of them. You, you can stack up all of the accolades. You can pad your IRA. You can reach the next level at your job and still be empty. And what Jesus is doing is lovingly showing this man that he needs to get to the end of himself. He has to reach the end of himself and the end of his effort, the end of his self-sufficiency to see his need. And Jesus has a way of bringing suffering into our lives to show us that all the false gods and all the false saviors will eventually crumble underneath us. And he meets him and he meets us in our desperation. And what he does is he shows us that no one is too important to be loved by Jesus because Jesus isn't impressed by you. Jesus isn't impressed by me. 
There's nothing that you or I bring to the table that Jesus just wows at. He created the universe. It'd be like if Jeff Bezos were to walk into your office and you were to show him your pay stub, right? He'd be like, that's cute. I make that in like a nanosecond. It's the same way. You can bring up all the things you do and all the accomplishments and all your goodness and lay them at the feet of Jesus and they don't compare. Nothing we do impresses Jesus. So all the structures that you put in place to impress others doesn't impress Jesus and he sees straight through to your heart. He loves influential people by telling them they're not as important as they think they are. But look at the other story. Let's compare. Look at who Jesus goes after in John 5. We see that in verse 1 that Jesus went to the feast of the Jews. And there, by the way, there was always a feast of the Jews. We're not sure exactly what feast this was. It was, it, it was like they were always partying. It's like, it's Tuesday, let's throw a party. It's like if you have elementary age children, you're making cupcakes twice a week. It's somebody's birthday, it's the color of the day is purple, it's the third, you don't know, but you're making cupcakes. It's a little bit like that with the Jews. Always a feast, always fun, always doing something. But we see that where Jesus goes is shocking. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, to give you an idea of what this would look like, like if you're in this room, there are four pillars or colonnades in each of the corners and the one dead in the center. And each of these had a giant overhang, which would create shade, and splitting, the, the pillar in the middle would split two pools. And these pools were set up right inside the gate, right inside the Sheep Gate, Now, this was not a nice public park. This wasn't a well-manicured park. Because we look at verse 3, we see who was there. In these lay the multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is the least and the forgotten. And so if you want a Boston equivalent of this, this is like going down to Mass and Cass. This would be like what the Arbor Way used to be. The Arbor Way back in the day actually used to be a highway that ran here, and hundreds and hundreds of homeless people lived right underneath the bridge. And if you've ever been to a place, and I don't mean to make light of this, but if you've ever been to a place like this, it can feel dehumanizing. There's a smell, a smell of not bathed in a very long time. There's, there, there are things that you would see in places like this that are utterly shocking for those of us who are sheltered to these things. And what we see is that Jesus steps into the most hopeless and broken places. He doesn't go to the public square. He doesn't go to the business district. He doesn't go into the palace. He goes to the forgotten and the broken and the least and the lost. That is who Jesus goes after. He goes looking for this man who's described as an invalid. Now, I have a funny story about this because uh, I had an intern years ago in Birmingham at our church. And he uh, was in Bible college, and he was having to preach for different groups of people. And he preached on this passage, and he kept referring to this man as the invalid man. He said, the invalid man could not walk. The invalid man could not get himself to the water. For 38 years, the invalid man. And we're sitting in the back trying to mouth at him. It's invalid. Like trying to help him out. He could never get there. And afterwards, of course, he was embarrassed, and we all had a good laugh about it. It's been like 10 years, so hopefully he's over it. Um, but in a way, this man was invalid. He could do nothing to drag himself to the water. He, he could do nothing. He couldn't will himself over there over 38 years. And in the same way, our hearts are invalid and we can do nothing to save ourselves. This is who Jesus goes after. The lost and the broken and the helpless and the least. 
And the Bible is full of stories like this, that Jesus goes after the unqualified. Why is it that you and I get so excited when a celebrity comes to faith in Jesus? It could be Justin Bieber, it could be Kanye, which by the way, I need to repent of that. A couple of years ago, I, I quoted Jesus as king in a sermon. It's like the lowest point of my ministry. Um, why do we get excited about that? Why do we get excited when, when Kat Von D, uh, who's a famous tattoo artist, comes to faith it's all over social media? Now, I don't want to belittle those stories. Those stories are amazing. But why do we get excited about those? It's because for some reason we believe that if important people come to faith in Jesus, it gives our faith credibility. If he believes, then maybe you should too. Look, this person's famous and wealthy, and, and she believes in Jesus now. Do you know what makes the gospel credible? It's Jesus. It's not who gets saved, it's how we get saved. Jesus saves broken people and makes them whole. He redeems and heals people with significant issues. And most of the people that God comes after in the Bible wouldn't pass a background check. People who were murderers, haters of God, given to lust, people with crazy issues, those are the people that Jesus saves. That's who Jesus goes after. He loves those who are unlovable. And this is why Paul in the New Testament, he'll often list these laundry lists of sins that Christians should avoid. And he ties these things. He said, these are things that you're practicing. You're not going to inherit the kingdom. And in one of the passages, he says something that's that's just beautiful. He says, as were some of you. Some of you were this way. Some of you were trapped in your sin. Some of you were trapped in bondage. Some of you were trapped in addiction. But now you've been rescued by Jesus. Jesus came to rescue messed up people like you and I. That is our story. And right now, I have to tell you, you have friends who you think would never come to Jesus because of the things that they're doing, the lifestyle that they're living, or what they believe, who are going to come to faith in Jesus because Jesus is powerful and safe. A couple of thoughts on this. First, Jesus loves you and can heal you no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how forgotten you think you are. Secondly, no one's so important that you don't need Jesus' love. And then thirdly, no one is so unlovable that Jesus won't love you. We see that Jesus loves all sorts of people. Secondly, Jesus heals all sorts of problems. It's fascinating here that while we're dealing with two different healings, they're very different in nature. They're different problems. The official son becomes ill, and it seems to be sort of a a quick onset illness. And and we take these things for granted. We take for granted that, you know, 150 years ago, a fever would kill you. Some of you would have died 30 times this year, the last seven days, right? Like, we take this for granted. This was a very acute and urgent problem. Jesus helps urgent problems. He helps us when we're desperate. He helps us when we go to him. And this man goes to Jesus, the, the, the official. He travels nearly 30 miles because he's desperate. Look at the end of verse 30, or 47. It says, for his son was at the point of death. This is his last hope. There is nowhere else to turn. He comes before Jesus and he says in verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. He is at the point of utter desperation. And we see in verse 50 that Jesus listens Go, your son will live. He heals him. There are times when your problems are going to feel like life or death. They're going to feel urgent. They're going to feel important. And you can cry out to God, please help me. And there are times where he'll be gracious 
to provide immediate or healing or help or relief. One of those for us is when Lily, our firstborn, uh, was in, in womb. Um, we found out about five, six months in that one of the, the arteries in, in Amy's body was not feeding enough blood to the body and to the, into the womb. And so we had about a week where we were on our face crying before the Lord. Amy, like I think, learned to knit or crochet or quilt or something that week. She had nothing else to do. She did something that week. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a plan to fix it. You know, I'm like, okay, what can I do to fix this? Utterly helpless before God. And we go that week up to Denver. We were living in Colorado at the time to get an ultrasound. And they said, everything's fine because the other artery on the other, because I gave you two, on the other side is working double time. God sometimes answers urgent prayers. But the problems that we have most of the time that are the hardest to trust Jesus with are the ones that seem like there's no end in sight. The one where it seems like all hope is gone. And that's where the invalid man comes in because for 38 years, he's been sitting at this pool hoping that healing would come. For 38 years, he would try to drag himself to the water again and again. And if you've never watched The Chosen, the depiction that they make of this is so beautiful. It's so stirring because there's a superstition that they believe that people at the time that the waters would be stirred by angels. And what would happen is the first person to get in the water could be healed, they thought. So for 38 years, this man tried to drag himself down into the water, hoping that he would be healed. And for 38 years, he was let down time and time again. And Jesus sees him. He knows this. In verse 6, he asks a pretty incredulous question. Do you want to be healed? Does he want to be healed? Like, that feels like a dumb question. That's all this man's ever wanted. Like, does Jesus need a counseling course or something? Like, what's he missing? But here's the thing about Jesus' questions. Jesus' questions always get to the heart. Anytime Jesus addresses someone or asks a question, it gets to the heart. When he mentions signs to to the official about his son, he gets to the desperation of that man's heart. When he asks this man, do you want to be healed? What he does is he reveals his hopelessness. Verse seven, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. I have no help. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Every time I try, someone just gets there before me. He feels utterly powerless. And we can imagine this range of emotions when you're working with a long-term problem that you can't seem to fix as you feel powerless and then you try to grab for control even harder. And then when you realize you're out of control or you're out of your depth, you get angry. And eventually, if it's a long enough problem, you just feel numb and apathetic. And this is where this man is. And at his lowest, Jesus steps in and tells him, verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. It's a command. Get up, take up your bed, walk. Simple. It's not build yourself back up. It's not prove that you're good enough to let me help you walk. But he receives this by grace. And once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. This is how real, lasting spiritual change happens. It's not from quick fixes. It's not just urgent pleas, but it's God in our waiting, bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we can see that Jesus alone has the power to heal and help. The official realized all his power couldn't heal his son. The invalid man realized that 38 years of hoping could not get him into the water. And the question for you and I is, are we willing to wait helplessly 
Are we willing to wait and open our hands before the Lord and say, I have nothing. I need you to bring breakthrough for me. But Jesus also uses this to get to the deeper problem. Look at verse 14. Afterward, this is a long time after, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This man's fully enjoying his working legs. He's in the temple and Jesus digs deeper and he says, you have a problem that goes deeper than your legs. Don't just take healing for your situation. And I want to just have a quick aside here because we'll cover this more in John chapter 9. It does appear that there is some sickness that's tied to sin. Some people would say, oh, all sin is sickness. Uh, all, all sickness is tied to sin. So if you're sick, that must be sin. That, that, we don't believe that. John 9 actually says that's not true. But there does appear to be some that is. And again, we'll unpack that in a few weeks. Uh, one example of that might be that if you're extremely guilty, you might have an ulcer because your body is responding to your guilt. But we see here that what God is doing is pointing to something deeper, that God's mercy in a situation is always an invitation to see the deeper mercy that's available to you. If God gets you out of of a jam, if God heals you, if God chooses not to, it's meant to point you towards your deeper need for a savior, that he doesn't just need new legs, he needs a new heart. The official sees the, the mercy that God gives him and he believes in Christ and that your problem goes deeper than needing a new marriage or a, a better condition or a new diagnosis or getting out of your struggles. How can those things point you to Jesus? So Jesus helps us in all sorts of problems. But thirdly, as we close, Jesus overcomes all sorts of powerful objections. Everyone in the story has a reason to not trust Jesus. Everyone has a reason to not believe in him. And Jesus has an answer for every single one of those objections. Jesus has an answer for skepticism, for your skepticism, for your cynicism. Jesus says back in chapter four, verse 50, he says, go, your son will live. Now he doesn't do what the man requested. He doesn't go with the man. He just simply says it and says that the man believed it. But you can also see sort of how the skepticism and cynicism would start to come in. Because you look at verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So again, this guy's got a long journey to kind of wrestle with this. He's like, I know Jesus said this and I know I believed it, but can that really happen? Can somebody really just say some words and my son be healed? Did did he just get lucky? It's like when you're a kid, if you like, if you watch Star Wars, you wanted to be a Jedi. So you'd like hold your hand open, hoping that the door would open at the same time. Um, I had that happen the other night. We had a champagne bottle in our house that had a cork that just popped out automatically. And I was like, dang it. But he's kind of wondering, is that what happened? Did, Did Jesus just get lucky? And he asked the man, when they tell him that his son is restored, he asked his servants, what hour did this happen? When, when he began to get better, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be about 1 p.m., the fever left him. In verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And we see that this is enough for him and all his household to believe. You might look at the claims of Christianity and you might think, yeah, right. Forgiveness, everything being made right, the end of suffering, I can have eternal life. What evidence is there to support that? Jesus not only lived, he not only died, he not only rose again, but this isn't wishful thinking. There are hundreds of eyewitness accounts, including the one we're reading about this morning. As John witnessed these things, he wrote them down for you and I. As Peter witnessed these things, he relayed them to Mark, Matthew, 
Luke. People like Paul, the 500 witnesses that are talked about in 1 Corinthians, saw Jesus risen again. The evidence that he'll heal you and I is that he is alive and he bears the scars of it and people saw it. It's the first evidence that you and I will be made whole to. By the way, there are so many good books that answer questions like this. I do want to recommend one. Uh, It's called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. She addresses several objections to Christianity head on. So if you're someone who struggles with skepticism, I would highly encourage you to check that book out. So Jesus answers the objection of our skepticism. Secondly, he answers the objection of your hopelessness. The invalid man had given up all hope, and Jesus meets him and extends unbelievable grace to him. And it's as Daryl Bach says that Jesus makes himself the center of our hope. He's the fulfillment of every promise of God for you and I. And what Jesus does for our hopelessness is he offers himself as the only solid ground to place our hope on when all others fail, Jesus gives you himself. And the last objection that he addresses is your idea of who Jesus is. He wants to reframe how you see him. And Jesus, as he often did, would ruffle the feathers of religious people. We see that he heals in verse 9 on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't exactly like this. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They don't like this. Do you see how backwards that is, by the way? They see a man that they have walked by, by the way, for 38 years and offered nothing but hopes and well wishes. And he's walking around. They don't say, wow, you can walk. They're like, who gave you authority and a permit to take up your bed and walk. It's like, I wish it would be like Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec where he had a little piece of paper that said, I do what I want to do. Jesus gave him authority. In verses, uh, verse 11, he says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And we see in verse 13, he didn't know that it was actually Jesus because he had withdrawn from him. He shifts the blame to Jesus We do see that he doesn't quite get it because in verse 15, once he finds out that it was Jesus, he just runs and tattles on Jesus. And so the Pharisees go to Jesus and it says in verse 16 that they were persecuting him or interrogating him because Jesus had broken the big no-no, the the, the one big rule. The Pharisees really cared about the Sabbath in the wrong way. They believed the Sabbath was something that they were to keep and if they kept it, they would make God love them more. In fact, they had 39 classes of work that you were to avoid on the Sabbath. I'm not going to read all of these, but I will give you a couple of highlights. On the Sabbath, there was no erasing, so put your pencil away. No washing, gross. No combing and no tanning. Not the tanning you're thinking, we're thinking of tanning leather. 39 classes of work that you could not do. And so Jesus responds in verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. If my father's working, I'm going to be working. What Jesus does is, verse 18 says, is puts himself on the same level as God the Father and says, my father's business is my business. If he works, I work because we're inseparable and there's work to be done. What Jesus is saying is that for you to enjoy the Sabbath rest, which by the way, the Sabbath is for us, not us for the Sabbath. It's not meant to impress God, but to make God more lovely to us. Somebody's got to work. For you to rest, someone has to work. Someone has to sustain all things. Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. God is the sustainer of your life. And for you to enjoy the air you're breathing right now, God has to be at work. 
for, for you to enjoy nature, for you to feel the warmth of the sun, not today, but for you to feel the warmth of the sun, for you to make use of the, any of the human innovations and inventions we've used, we need to have a God who works to sustain all things. And what Jesus is saying is that if you want real rest for your soul, if you want real healing, if you want real forgiveness, if you want a real end of all evil, it's going to come through his work for you so that you can rest. It's going to come because Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live, that he died the death that you and I deserve, that he rose again to new life. Because of Jesus' work for you, you can rest in him. Three takeaways and we'll close up. First of all, we're called here because Jesus loves all sorts of people to come as we are. You don't have to tidy up or clean up to come to Jesus. Come to him as you are. But secondly, as you do, ask for help. Because we don't come to Jesus to say the same. He promises to heal us and shape us and change us into his image. And then thirdly, bring your objections. Bring all the objections you have and honestly read the scriptures and see how Jesus answers those. See who Jesus really is and what he's done for you. Let's pray.